Today's Old Testament reading comes from Psalm 18, verses 1 to 2, and 25 to 29, and can be found on pages 550 to 551 in the Church Bibles. I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. To the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. But to the devious, you show yourself shrewd. You save the humble, but bring low those whose eyes are haughty. You, Lord, keep my lamp burning. My God turns my darkness into light. With your help, I can advance against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. This is the word of the Lord. Today's New Testament reading comes from Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22, and can be found on page 1236 in the Church Bibles. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot, cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich, and white clothes so to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the ones who are victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me in prayer as we prepare for the preaching of God's word. Join me in prayer. Lord God, we wish this morning to see Jesus. By your Spirit's power, give us eyes to see his glory. Through Christ we pray. Amen. I was recently walking past some very expensive and exclusive shops. Shops that I'm guessing the security guards would be hesitant to let someone like me or dress like me enter, uh, especially with the collar. I figure, well, that guy's not going to be able to afford this. <laughs> this experience of walking past these shops reminded me of a whole category of objects that might be described as fabulously useless, fabulously useless. These fabulously useless objects are objects that look amazing, but actually have little other purpose than to elicit oohs and ahs from those looking at them. I'm talking here, for example, about an object like a diamond-studded Hello Kitty doll, okay? There is one, you can buy it, it's 170 thousand francs, 170,000 francs. This diamond Hello Kitty doll is to be sure fabulous, 
Doesn't get more fabulous than that, perhaps. But it's also pretty useless. You can't play with a diamond Hello Kitty doll. You can basically just put it on a shelf and look at it. Like I said, fabulously useless. As is a solid gold Lego brick I came across. Now, you might think at least a Lego brick would have some use. You can build with it after all. But, but think about it. How long do you suppose a 14 karat, 15,000 franc gold Lego piece would remain part of your Lego collection if you let your kid and his or her friends play with it, right? I'm guessing that solid gold Lego brick would soon disappear into someone's pocket. Yes, even in Switzerland that might happen. Total depravity is present here as well. So I'm guessing it's pretty useless because your kid wouldn't be able to use it for long. It would disappear. All right, one more example, something fabulously useless. If you're, anyone here fisherman, fisherwoman, I guess? Anyone here fish? No one, not a single person? Hold on, let's check the balcony. Anyone on the balcony fish? Do we not have a single, okay, forget the analogy. I'll, I'll use a different one. No, ah, uh, that was gonna happen. Okay, let's use it anyway. If you're a fisherman, did you know that there is a gold, diamond, and ruby fishing lure you can buy. And you can buy it for one million Swiss francs. One million Swiss francs. And the advertising on it's very interesting. It says this. It's designed to catch world-class fishermen and fish alike. So I'm guessing, though, it's going to catch more fishermen than it is going to catch fish. So again, fabulously useless. The thing doesn't catch fish. One last thing now I'd like to add to this list of fabulously useless things, and that is the church at ancient Laodicea. The church at ancient Laodicea. I might suggest, based on Jesus' words in Revelation 3, that the Christian there, the Christian church there in the ancient city of Laodicea, might also be classified as fabulously useless. Now, make no mistake, that church was fabulous. But it was also pretty useless. How so fabulous? How so useless? We'll find out in a bit. First of all, let me just remind you where we are now in this sermon series. We're on the seventh of seven churches, seventh of seven churches in Asia, to which Jesus gives performance reviews in Revelation 2 and three, Jesus has given performance reviews to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia. And now finally, we come to this performance review of the church at Laodicea. As has been his custom, Jesus starts out his performance review with words of introduction to the church. He introduces himself to the church. And this is how he introduces himself to the church at Laodicea. I'm at Revelation 3, verse 14 here. Jesus says this. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. So Jesus says that he is the Amen. Does that strike you as odd for someone to say that they are 
the amen? I mean, we know that people say amen, but that people can be an amen? What's with that? Well, let's think about that word amen for a moment. There's one Bible commentator I read said, amen can mean so let it be, so let it be, such as when we say it after a prayer, right? We're saying so let it be when we close our prayers with that word amen. But likewise, amen can mean that's the truth. Just like when I preach sermons, I hear all these amens. Pastor Mark, that's the truth you're saying when you're saying amen, right? That's the truth. So in any case, it seems that it is this latter meaning of amen. That's the truth meaning of amen that Jesus is using here to introduce himself. He's introducing himself as the truth itself, which fits exactly with his next description of himself, where he says that he is the faithful and true witness. So taken together then, these, these first two parts of the introduction, they serve to establish Jesus as someone who is going to speak the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So with this implica- the implication here is that these folks at the church at Laodicea, they better listen. And they better listen well, because what they're going to hear is truth itself. As we find out, though, as we continue to read this introduction, verse 14, there's another reason they'd better listen to what Jesus is going to say. They'd better listen well because the one who is delivering this truth to them, he is also the ruler of God's creation. You see that in verse 14, Jesus describing himself as the ruler of God's creation. So as such, when Jesus introduces himself as the ruler of God's creation, he's telling these people that he has the authority to do what he wills with the creation and all those in it. In other words, I, Jesus, I'm the one calling the shots around here. He's telling these people in Laodicea, these church people there. And so so that's another reason then they should listen to him. Okay. So this performance review that the church at Laodicea is about to receive, it's coming from someone who speaks only truth and who possesses absolute authority. What does Jesus now say to the believers at that church? What is his performance review of this church? Well, if you remember from past reviews, if you were here in previous weeks, Jesus often begins his performance reviews of churches with what is called a commendation. Commendation. That's the good stuff, the nice stuff, the attaboy stuff, right? He tells them something nice about how they're doing as a church. The progress here or performance there. This, is, this, though, is what Jesus says to the church at Laodicea. This is how he starts out his review of them. Verse 15, he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. All right. So if you were in a performance review and your boss said, I'm ready to spit you out of my my mouth, you'd be thinking, hmm, this probably isn't going the right direction for me, right? And you can imagine those in the Laodicean church thinking the same. 
These are not exactly words of praise here for that church. In fact, there will be no praise coming to the church at Laodicea out of Jesus' mouth. This church, in fact, is the only church of the seven to receive no praise, nothing nice said about it, no commendation. Sure, other churches in the reviews were warned about their involvement in sexual immorality, admonished for their practice of idolatry. They were charged with being spiritually asleep at the wheel, corrected for neglecting to love each other. But in all these other reviews of these six churches, Jesus found at least one thing, one thing nice to say about him. In this review, though, there will be nothing good to say about the church at Laodicea. They are, as we've just learned, a church that Jesus wants to spit out of his mouth. So, what does Jesus mean here when he says they're lukewarm? Many of you heard sermons on this topic before. Um, it's a, it's a well-known passage. A lot of interpretations of this lukewarm business. But I think if we understand the water situation in its context there in Laodicea, I think this will help us understand what Jesus is referring to when he's calling them lukewarm. So according to historians and Bible scholars in the ancient world, the, the water, such as the city of Colossae, that was the city where the Colossian church was, not too far away, not too far away from Laodicea, uh, the water of that city was very useful. And the reason it was useful was because it was cold and fresh. It came from a mountain called Mount Cadmus, Mount Cadmus. And so this water would come down from Mount Cadmus, and it was cool and refreshing. It could be used for drinking water, and it was very useful, that cold water in Colossae. And likewise, in a na another neighboring city, Hierapolis, there was water, too, that was useful. But it was useful in a different way. It was hot water. It came from the hot springs there. And so this water was used for therapeutic reasons. People took healing baths in this water. And so this city, as well, had useful water. Now to Laodicea and its water. Well, Laodicea apparently did not have its own water source. So they had to pipe it in. And you can literally see some of these old pipe networks that they had if you go there. They had to pipe their water in from these hot springs that were not too far away. But more often than not, by the time the water reached them, it wasn't hot anymore. It was lukewarm. And for this reason, it was pretty much good for nothing, as we talked about in the children's message. Lukewarm water, it's, I mean, it's okay, but really most of the time you need hot water, you need cold water. So this water in Laodicea, it was useless because it was lukewarm. Unlike the cold water from Colossae, you couldn't drink it or at least immediately drink it. Unlike the, the hot water from Hierapolis, you, you couldn't bathe in it. No, this water from Laodicea was, on arrival, useless, which is the point Jesus is trying to make about this church at Laodicea. That, it's, that it, too, is useless, just like that lukewarm water. So what was this uselessness all about there in Laodicea? What did it have to do with 
Well, let's read on. Let's take our passage further. This is what Jesus says next to the church there. This is verse 17. He says, You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. And do not need a thing. Hmm. So now I think we get a little better idea of why Jesus considers this church so useless. The long and short of it is that because of their great wealth there, the members of that church didn't feel they needed anyone or anything. They didn't need Jesus. They didn't need anyone else. They proudly viewed themselves as self-sufficient and self-reliant. And this was affecting their witness to the world, their witness on behalf of Jesus Christ to the world. You can imagine that in their lives, these proud people, they reflected none of the humility and meekness of Christ. You can imagine that in their lives, these proud people reflected nothing of the peace and joy of Christ's kingdom. You can imagine that there's not a whole lot of service and sacrifice going on in that church. Not a whole lot of surrender and submission going on in that church. No, it would seem that these people in that church just live in celebration of themselves and their accomplishments and their self-reliance and their self-sufficiency. Because remember, they don't need anyone. We've just read that. They don't need anything. So they just celebrate themselves and their accomplishments, which really, if you think about it, is so Laodicean, right? Well, it is. You see, Laodicea was a very wealthy city in the ancient world. And its people, according to historians, were very proud of their wealth. And understandably so, right? Uh, Laodicea apparently had some of the biggest banks in the world at that time. They had some of the best wool producers. They made some of the best fabrics there in Laodicea. It was a special black wool. Very fine, very beautiful, very sought after, the wool that they produced there. And they even had a thriving pharmaceutical industry there in Laodicea. Well, I say pharmaceutical, but it was an eye salve. Some of you might have heard of this before. They produced a salve, a lotion for the eyes that supposedly restored sight or helped with sight. So from their standpoint then, from the standpoint of these highly accomplished people in that highly accomplished city, in, in the highly accomplished church too, they didn't need anyone or anything. They were so fabulous in so many ways already. But as Jesus points out, they're not fabulous. They're just fabulously useless. Useless, like lukewarm water. Because they fail to witness to who Jesus is and what he's all about. They fail to witness to who he is and what his kingdom is all about. Like that diamond Hello Kitty doll, like that gold Lego brick, like that ruby diamond and gold fishing lure, those in the church at Laodicea look wonderful, fantastic, great. But since they failed in their calling to be a useful church, failed in their calling to be a, a humble, selfless, servant-oriented uh, people of God, they're just fabulously useless. Fabulously useless. 
Well, Jesus goes on in the review to set these people straight, these fabulously useless people. He goes on to speak truth to them, as we would expect, given his introduction, right? He goes on to speak truth to them, and I'm pretty sure this is truth they did not want to hear. Jesus tells them that instead of being fabulous, they are wretched and pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Ouch. Right? Second part of verse 17 there. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Those are Jesus' words to that church. Now to us, this might seem like, these might seem like random words that Jesus uses. Random words of condemnation. But most Bible commentators think otherwise. Let's look at those words that Jesus uses to describe that church. They seem to be specifically chosen for the Laodiceans, given their context, given their situation. The Laodiceans are self-sufficient, self-reliant. What does Christ tell them? They're wretched, pitiful, or pitiable. The Laodiceans are proud of their money in banks. Christ tells them they're poor. The Laodiceans are proud of the salve that restores sight. Christ tells them they're blind. The Laodiceans are proud of their beautiful garments made of that special black wool. Christ tells them they're naked. Christ confronts them here with the objects of their pride. And he tells them they're worthless. They're not doing the job. These things they're so proud of, he tells them, they're nothing. And then the next verse, he goes on to tell them how he is everything. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. So what Jesus is telling them here with these words is that they're needy and what they truly need is him. The refined gold that Jesus says he has for them, it's probably a reference to faith, true faith, strong faith that has been tested with fire. It's tested in true faith. The white clothes that Jesus says he has for them, they represent a life of purity, a life of holiness. And then the last when Jesus says he has an eye salve for them, he's not talking about something that's going to cure, going to cure physical sight, but spiritual sight. The ability to see one's own weaknesses, one's own need, and what Jesus has to offer them. So what Jesus is trying to do with these words, targeted directly at those Laodiceans, is to obliterate any sense of self-sufficiency, any sense of self-reliance that these people might have, and show them how what they, co- what they possess does not compare to what he possesses. And the best he has to give them, he talks about next when he says this, verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Those whom I love, I rebuke and disciple. Or discipline, Jesus says. 
So be earnest and repent. In other words, this is Jesus asking those people to come clean. See yourselves for who you are. Consider how far you've distanced yourselves from me. And then come back. Come back to me. It's really amazing if you think about it, right? Jesus wants this church back. Even though they are who they are. Even though they've done what they've done. He wants them back. He has no desire to continue to scold them. No, Jesus wants to enfold them. Draw them close. Make them his again. Such is his love for that church. Such is his love for those members. To illustrate his love for them, Jesus presents himself as someone at their door. Someone at their door who is waiting to be let in. And why, do we read, does Jesus want to come in? To reprimand, to punish, to chastise those people? No. As we just read, Jesus wants to eat dinner with them. He wants to share a meal with them. In other words, he wants to commune with them. To spend time with them. To draw closer to them. That's his desire. You see the relational aspect of Jesus here, right? He wants to have dinner with them. And this dinner, this desire for dinner signifies a, a desire for a deeper relationship. And that's why this performance review is, at least in part, being given. Because Jesus wants to deepen his relationship with this church. He wants them to come closer to him. He wants them to know him better, to love him more, to rely on him for their all. And that's why he's at the door knocking, as he writes. And if they, if they let him in, well, great things await him. We read this in verse 21. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So for those in the church in Laodicea who successfully resist the temptation to be fabulously useless, for those who successfully resist the temptation to be self-sufficient, self-reliant, and proudly so, we read that they're going to sit on Christ's throne with him. Just as Christ will be exalted for overcoming, they will be exalted for overcoming. And for this, and in this, they'll share in his glory by sitting, metaphorically speaking, on his throne with them. And this is, of course, a promise of eternal life for them. It's a promise of life eternal in the, in the company of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay, so as we now wrap up this series on the seven churches of Revelation, let me ask you this. I've got a few things to say, but let me, let me start by asking you this. Were you surprised, were you surprised by the fact that seemingly the worst church in the bunch, of the bunch, the church about which Christ had nothing good to say, this was not one of the churches struggling with rampant sexual immorality, not one of the churches dealing with deep-seated complacency, not one of the churches dealing with idol worship or false teachings, but a church that was merely proud. 
proudly self-sufficient, proudly self-reliant. Does this surprise you? Surprise you that the merely proud church of Laodicea seemingly ends up at the bottom of the heap? Well, I wouldn't be surprised if you were surprised. This because these days the sin of pride, in my opinion at least, doesn't seem to get a whole lot of attention in churches or church by church people, right? I don't see a lot of blogs or articles or books written about pride. I don't hear a lot of sermons preached on it. Uh, don't witness uh, a lot of impassioned diatribes directed at it. Uh, very few mentions of pride when Christians get together and talk about the world's ills and the church's evils. Many of these other sins, of course, that Jesus mentions, they do receive a lot of attention. I wonder sometimes if it's because these other sins are, are, are seen as the sins of, well, not us. And therefore, maybe a little bit more attractive targets for condemnation. You might even call those other sins feel-good sins, right? Because they make us feel better about ourselves because we're not doing those things. In any case, it's a bit curious that pride is not something talked about more in the church. Because many of most Christian thinkers over the millennia have identified pride as the sin of all sins. In fact, it is the original sin, right? Pride. It was, after all, Adam and Eve thinking they knew better than God that made them do what they did in the Garden of Eden. One Christian writer, not mincing any words, describes pride as the complete anti-God state of mind. The complete anti-God state of mind. That's what pride is. Another calls it the deepest form of unbelief. The writer of Proverbs says, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. It's pretty serious stuff, this pride stuff, huh? So why is it such a problem? Why is it such a problem? Well, it has a lot to do with this charge that Jesus levels against the church there in Laodicea. He says, remember, that they do not need a thing. They do not need a thing, Jesus says of them. This not needing a thing sentiment in that church. You can imagine that this started perhaps in other realms of their life. The, the financial realm, for example. And gradually, perhaps, it then spread to the spiritual realm of their lives. And of course, this is where it gets really bad, really serious. Really, I might even say deadly. You understand the danger here, right? You understand the danger. When we are convinced that the success we have achieved financially or vocationally or academically or familially in our families, when we are convinced that this success is mainly attributable to us and what we have done, we can so easily be convinced that the success we have achieved spiritually is also attributable to who we are and what we've done. We can become convinced, for example, that it is our virtue and not the grace of God in Jesus Christ that has led to our salvation. Not consciously, perhaps. I don't think anyone thinks this consciously, but subconsciously, 
perhaps. It's no wonder then in Matthew 19 that Jesus says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Yes, self-sufficiency, self-reliance in the financial, vocational, academic, or family, or even church realm can lead to feelings of self-sufficiency and self-reliance in the spiritual realm. This because it creates a mindset for us as human beings, a mindset of I am the master of my own destiny. I am the Lord of all my outcomes. And it can so easily take hold on us and affect every area of our lives. And indeed, this is what appears to have happened in the case of the people at the church at Laodicea. They're not needing anything from anyone else. Soon translated into not needing Christ himself. Their proud perspective of self-sufficiency and self-reliance quickly spread to every realm of their lives. And as a result, it made them useless as his servants in this world, as his witnesses to the world. Jesus graciously, though, in his words to the church at Laodicea, invites them, and he invites us into something else. He invites us all into a relationship of dependence and reliance on him, which perhaps counterintuitively for us as humans is actually the path for a life of fulfillment and contentment for us. You see, it's once we acknowledge our, our need of him that we then have the opportunity to find satisfaction within ourselves. This because with such an acknowledgement, we come to recognize that all this straining and striving we're doing, all this chasing and pursuing we're doing in our lives, whether this be, again, the financial or academic or vocational or family or church realm of our lives, all this striving and straining and pursuing and chasing, it's not ultimately going to give us what we need. It's not ultimately going to give us what we want. No, it's only a relationship, an intimate relationship with the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation, that will give us what we want and what we need. And it will give us what we want and what we need as we seek then to be useful for Christ in the building up of his kingdom. We will then, unlike those Laodiceans, be able to truly witness to who Christ is and what he's all about. One last thought before I close. Uh, I'm very glad that this sermon uh, fell on a home group Sunday. And let me tell you why I'm glad for this. Um, you do know it's home group Sunday, right? We're featuring our home group ministry this morning. Uh, and I'll tell you why I'm glad that this sermon fell on this Sunday. I think in a very real way, real way, home groups are antidotes to the kind of self-reliance and self-sufficiency that was present in the church at Laodicea. This because when we participate in a home group, we're in a way acknowledging that we can't do life on our own. And that we can't do faith on our own. And that actually we need Christ and his people 
in our lives. So participating in a home group is, I believe, a statement that we need Christ and his people to, to get something from them, that they can give us something. In the case of Christ, we can get from him the love and compassion we need, the grace and the mercy, the, the forgiveness and the freedom we need in this life. And from other people, the love and kindness, the encouragement and support, the wisdom and the guidance we need, this we receive also in that context. So I do believe that participating in a home group then is an acknowledgement of need, an acknowledgement of need. And that's probably something that's tough for almost all of us, given who we are, given the kind of people we are. But I would say also that it's something that is absolutely necessary for all of us to acknowledge our need of both Jesus Christ and his people. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Please join me in prayer. Father, you've given us another tough, tough, tough challenge today in the church at Laodicea. And we uh, thank you for these words through Christ your Son. And we pray that we would respond to these words in um, devotion, in love, in action, and in obedience. Lord, help us to admit, to acknowledge that we can't do it alone, that we need you and we need, the, need your people in our lives. And help us to cling to you for our all, that we would find our ultimate supply and provision uh, for our lives in you. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Go into the world this week full of dependence and reliance on Jesus Christ. And go into the world this week empty of any worry or concern that he will give you what you ultimately need. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you and remain with you always. Amen.